Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We were discussing last night strange things that children say, and I was reminded of that this morning. I've told you this story before. When the children were little, they kept wanting to hear the chapstick song. And for the life of us, we had no idea what the chapstick song was until I figured it out. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how much chapstick is your name? It was the chapstick song. So I actually love the ice this week. I enjoyed teaching all my classes, but they all got canceled. And it was wonderful. I could sit at home. Anyway, we started 1 Peter three or four weeks ago. Uh, we did the introduction, and then starting in verse 3, we had a long discussion about what salvation was, what God has done for us. And if you notice in that passage, there's not a word about anything that we do. It's all God doing it for us, which gets us to the point where we were talking about, in this you rejoice, we rejoice in our salvation, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The church, the churches that Peter is writing to are beginning to get a taste of persecution, of difficult times. And Peter is writing this in order that they might have hope. And that was last week's lesson in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about the fact that Peter is kind of arranges things differently than Paul does in his letters. Paul, his common pattern is he spends the first half of the book talking about doctrine and the second half talking about what should you do about it, the application. Peter, on the other hand, talks a little bit about doctrine, and then he says, and do this. And then he talks a little bit more about doctrine, and then he says, and then do this. <coughs> so we started in verse 13 with him telling us some things we need to do, and we made it about a verse and a half into that. And I commented, if you read the commentaries, because I am not a Greek scholar in any form or fashion. There's really only two commands in this passage that we're working through. The one is set your hope, and the second is, well, be holy. That's today's lesson. The rest of them are things that you do in order to accomplish those things. We are to gird up our minds so that we will have hope. We are to be sober-minded so that we will have hope. Which brings us to today's lesson, which is uh, verse 14. We might make it a couple more verses. We might not. Who knows? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holy is a word that we use a lot in church, 
to talk about a lot of things, but I'm not sure we really have a grasp about what holiness is. We live in a very materialistic age, material as in we believe that matter is all that exists. And when we see something, we don't say that's holy, we say it's, well, it's made out of metal, it's this, it's got this weight, its value is this, or something. People talk about our disenchanted age. We don't recognize God behind the things of this world. Holiness is talked about throughout the entire Bible. It doesn't show up in Genesis chapter 1, but it shows up very early in chapter 2. And it shows up in Revelation 22, which happens to be the last chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, God has just completed creating the world. And it says in six days he completed it, and on the seventh day he rested and he made it holy. What does it mean that the seventh day is holy? When the nation of Israel was brought out of captivity in Egypt, they were given directions on how to build a tabernacle, a place of worship, a place for God to dwell in their midst. And there is this long discussion about how you make it. And every object in there, here's a cup, here's how you make that cup. Here is something, a basin to pour the blood into. Here is the basin you put the water in. And all of those things, those objects, were declared to be holy. What does that mean that a basin, a bowl, is holy? I mean, we could say, well, it's made out of gold, it's valuable. We could talk about how much it weighs, all of that stuff. But none of that explains why it's holy. And I actually want to look at this verse backwards a little bit. The verse I just read, or the three verses I just read, says that we are to be holy because God is holy. So let's start with God and work our way backwards, okay? What does it mean when we say God is holy? When we talk about God, oftentimes we'll get into a discussion of the attributes of God. I've actually taught a series before on the attributes of God. You have this list, you know, God is holy, God is love, God is this, God is that. The Bible is full of them. It's a great study. The attributes of God. There are some problems, though, that you run into when you talk about the attributes of God. One of them is that you and I have a tendency to pick and choose. We like that attribute of God. We don't like that attributes of God. So we'll make God <clears throat> in our image with the attributes that we want. Today, that usually boils down to one, which is? Love. God is love. And you know what? The Bible says God is love. It really does. And that's a great thing. 
But that's not all it says about God. And there's nothing in the scripture that allows you and I to go through the scripture and pick which ones we like. See, we have this mindset that somehow these are just things tacked on to God. You know, like I can tack a little holiness on, I can tack a little love, maybe a little wrath. No, no, we won't have that one. A little mercy, that's good. No, these are part of the character of who God is. We can't pick and choose. Yeah, but I have trouble understanding how this one and this one can coexist. Well, if you have trouble understanding it, it's not God's problem. It's our problem. And sometimes we just have to say, God, I don't know how your love and your wrath coexist, but the scripture says it does. Now, I happen to think we can't explain that, by the way. We just don't want to know the answer. So what does it mean when the Bible says God is holy? The definition of holy usually given is set apart. What is God set apart from? Well, there's two answers to this. The second answer we'll spend most of our time on. But the first answer is that God is set apart from, well, everything. Everything in the universe, from angels to humans to animals to plants to rocks, all of that is created by God. And God is set apart from all of that. We are not pantheists believing that God somehow is in all of this stuff. God is apart from everything. But the second aspect of it is God is set apart from sin. God is holy means that God and sin are not standing side by side. Now, we could have a long discussion about this. Because, well, did God create sin? No. You mean there's something that God didn't create? Well, sin is not a created thing. It is the fallenness of some created thing. It is that which God has created being used, misused, in some form or fashion for which it was not originally created. It's an absence, not a thing that is created. We can also talk about the fact that this is why the whole plan of salvation is necessary for us. All of the Bible, every bit of it, from chapter 3 of Genesis to chapter 22 of Revelation, is all about how you and I, as fallen sinful human beings, can enter the presence of a holy God. That's the whole story right there. How do we do that? Well, we offer sacrifices. Well, that didn't work very well. What finally worked was God sending God, his son, on our behalf to pay the penalty for that sin. That's what we talked about at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1. So God is holy. God is apart from sin. We are called to be holy 
as God is holy. Now, once again, when you talk about the attributes of God, theologians have a tendency to break these things down into groups. That's just what theologians do. There are the incommunicable and the communicable attributes. It sounds like a disease, doesn't it? And the truth is, yes, it is, okay? A disease that you can pass on to somebody else is communicable. There are attributes that God has that he in turn tells us to have. God is love. We are to demonstrate a love. God is merciful. We are to demonstrate mercy. God is holy. We are to have holiness. There are other attributes of God. The fact that he has existed since eternity past. I wasn't there in eternity past. The fact that he is unchangeable. We change all the time. So there's a list of those that are communicated to us communicable, and those that aren't. But even on the ones that are communicable, passed on to us, we still have to remember we're not God. God is love. God's love permeates who he is. We work at it. Some days we do pretty good. Some days... Eh, not so well. Did y'all sit on the back row because I whacked you last week? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So even though we are demonstrating these attributes that God has, God is still God, and we are still created beings. So when God tells us to be holy, he is not telling us to be God. Because you and I will never be God. We are not good Mormons. We do not become gods when we die. Yes, they do believe that, by the way. We do not become God. But as a created being, created in the image of God, we are called To be set apart from what? Well, the top of that list is sin. Mm. We don't like that idea. Is, Is there some other option that we can follow? That's the end of the passage. Let's go back to the beginning of the passage. As obedient children, okay, I don't know about you, but to the best of my knowledge, I never turned to my children and said, as obedient children, this is what you ought to do, (laughs) okay? There's probably a few times where I said, as a disobedient child, this is what you're doing. But Peter is telling this church We are children, and we are called to be obedient children. That is to be what we are. Let's keep reading. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 
We said in the first lesson that there is a debate about who the book of 1 Peter is written to. Is it written to Jews that are scattered around this area? Or is it written to Gentiles that are scattered around this area? And me, in my typical response, said yes. Okay? This passage would actually lead you to believe it's written to Gentiles. Because if you were a good Jew at this time, you would at least have had some knowledge about what, who God is and what he expects of you. If you were a good old-fashioned pagan, who knows what you knew about anything? So <coughs> is this ignorance just something that pagans have, or is it something that all of us have at some part in our life? Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, now, this I say to you, this is verse 17, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Remember last week's lesson, gird up your mind, prepare your mind for... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But wait, 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 do to the hardness of their heart. Here's the question. Are they ignorant because they haven't been taught, or are they ignorant because they don't want to know? And the answer is, you got the right answer. Yes. Peter is telling them that before your relationship with God, before the Holy Spirit indwelled you, you lived in ignorance. And we can have a long discussion at what point in a child's life is their misbehaving due to ignorance or their misbehaving is due to they know but they don't want to know so they don't do. And you know what? I have no clue where that line crosses. I do know that sometimes that line is crossed. And you look at them and you go, you did that on purpose. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they were in ignorance even though they should have known. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 1. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the created order. But we... All of humanity chose to worship not the creator, but the created thing. So God gives us over to our sin. He lets us get away with it. That is ignorance. So Peter, in this passage, is contrasting living in the passions of your former ignorance versus being holy. So what do those passions do for us? Well, it is interesting because several other places in the scripture, in Ephesians, Paul talks about the deeds of darkness and walking in the light. And guess what? Here's a list. 
Here's a list. In the book of Galatians, there is the fruit of the Spirit, the good list, and there are the works of the flesh, the bad list. We know what kinds of things are on this list. To be driven by your passions is to let sin run through, permeate your life, and live accordingly. My passion says, I want to take something that's not mine, and I do it. My passion says, I want to get angry because I didn't get my way, so I get angry. The ignorance is ignorance of how God would have us to live. And Peter is telling them, don't do that. Now, I will say right now, that's hard. Okay? We have talked repeatedly in this class, we talked about it when we went through the doctrinal statement, about the doctrine of sanctification. More about that in just a moment. But it's a process. Why? Because when I become a believer, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in me, I am declared to be righteous before God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I still have some bad habits. I still want to do things my way. I still get angry. I still, ugh. That's why Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. And I might add, there's a debate. There are people who say that couldn't possibly be the saved Paul. Paul is talking about his life before he became a Christian. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Why? Because if we're all honest with each other, we've all experienced that. I want to do what is right. I want to love my wife and children. I want to do good. And you know what? Sometimes I just don't. Because I'm following after the passions of my former ignorance. What is the solution to that? Instead of doing that, what are we called to do? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, that's God, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What's the response that we're supposed to have? You and I are called to be holy. Let's just stop right there and ponder for the next 50 years, what that means. What was the word we just mentioned? Sanctification. You do know, right, that the word sanctification and the word holy are actually the same word. One of them is just the process of becoming holy. Sanctification is us becoming holy. So, I am justified. I am declared righteous before God because of what Christ has done. And down here somewhere, we're going to die and we will be glorified. 
that last remnant of our sin nature will be wiped away. Between there and there is life. And we as believers are called to be sanctified, to be holy. And it's not just a piece of you becoming holy. Be holy in all of your conduct. Huh. Well, how about if I do it on Sundays, but on Mondays? Nah. And I'll take Tuesdays off if it's okay with you. How about if I'm holy in this area of my life? You know, when I stand up here and I put my coat on, then I'll be holy. But when I take my coat off, I'll be something else. No, in all your conduct, we are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart from sin and from the world's way of doing things. Well, there's only one way I can do that. I need to go out into the desert and become a hermit. And you know what? Many Christians have done that. I've told you before, about a mile and a half from my house is a convent. And it's not a convent of, you know, those who go out, nuns that go out, sisters that go out and work in the neighborhood. No, they're in their little cells praying all day long. And you know what? I have a little respect for that. I mean, we need people who pray. But the whole idea of becoming the hermit in the desert, and you start looking at the early church, there were the desert hermits, so that's why I bring this up, is somehow I've got to be separated from the world, so the world won't corrupt me. Yes, ma'am. Even though they're set apart in that context, they're still sinners in that context. That's right. Why? Because the problem isn't out there. The problem is in the human heart. We, well, I won't even go there. We can have long discussions about how sin and corruption comes from that group of people, whatever that group of people is. The Pharisees had this problem. The Pharisees would walk down the street. Who knows if somebody would touch you and pollute you, so you come back into the house and you go through this ritual washing, okay? I'm all in favor of hygiene. That's not what they were worried about. They were worried about sin seeping into them. And it's kind of interesting because if you read the Old Testament, that's kind of what they were supposed to do. This is fascinating to me. You read the book of Leviticus and there's all of these strange laws, okay, about who you can touch and not touch and be pure or unclean, okay? There's a dead body over there. Somebody has to bury the dead body. But if you touch the dead body, you are unclean. Because the decay is seeping over into you. You, as a man, could not touch a woman while she's having her period. Because that uncleanliness would make you unpure. That was the direction. 
And so the Pharisees just carried that to the next level. Sin is out there and it's trying to get me and I've got to stay away from it. Then this guy shows up. This guy named Jesus. And you know what? He touches the sinner and it doesn't make Jesus impure. It makes the sinner clean. Think about that for a while. Anyway, so we have this idea that if I can just separate myself from that, I'll be okay. And I might add, there are some things in life that you probably should be separated from, okay? Let's just go there. But you have to remember that the problem is not out there, it's in your heart. And we are called to be holy in all our conduct. So Ephesians, Galatians, other places, it does say, put off this and put on this. Put off the works of the flesh, put on the fruits of the spirit. Put off the works of darkness, put on the works of, well, walk in the light. We are told to do that. But you know what? We have this problem today. We hate having somebody tell us what to do. I think I told you last week, I read an essay the week before, and it was just bizarre to me. You know, any philosophy that puts duties on you is evil because it is interfering with the autonomous self. Guess what? You are not an autonomous self. You are created in the image of God to bring glory to God for all of your life. And you know what? That's okay. That's good. But we live in a world that says that's bad. That's why we have trouble with the idea of holiness. Holiness carries with it the idea that I am not holy and I need a God to help me become holy. Are you dying to ask a question? <laughs> her, her observation is that it just seems a little selfish if I think that I can go hide away and keep the world from corrupting me. But the, the, the Bible deals with this difficulty. You know, we are in the world, but not of the world. And I, I'm willing to concede that all of us have to wrestle with that about what that means to us, okay? Uh, 
to pick a bizarre example, you know, let's say I was, I'm not, I wouldn't know if I was or not, an alcoholic, okay? If I am a known alcoholic, maybe I should totally refrain from drinking wine because I have a propensity in certain ways. Whereas somebody else who's grown up drinking wine with dinner every day, it has no effect on them at all. So people are different. So maybe one person does need to not enter into certain environments, whereas another person can and still maintain their holiness. You know, I've used the example before. I should probably not go witness to prostitutes. Just saying, okay? First off, nobody would believe me that I was doing it, so, but, but I shouldn't do that. But I also have read stories of women in particular who minister to prostitutes. And you know what? That's fabulous. That is great. It's just not something I should be doing. Does that make sense? So we all are called to be holy. And the scripture is very clear what that means. We are not to engage in the passions of our former ignorance. But how that works itself out in your daily life may look different. That's why we have this whole discussion about, well, some things are sin to this person and they're not to that person, which just drives me nuts. Okay, my nice legalistic mind wants a clear list and you've stepped over it. Okay, I mean, so I'm going to acknowledge the fact that sometimes, well, all the time it's difficult. But that's what we're called to do, okay? We are not called to go live in a box so the world doesn't corrupt us. Because we are called to do something. And we're called to be holy while we do it. So, holiness is being set apart for what God would have us to do. As we talked about God, There are two aspects of holiness. One aspect is being apart from sin itself. You ready for this? You as a believer are going to sin. When you sin, you repent and God will forgive you. If you have no interest in repenting, you're probably not a believer. We're going to sin, but it's never excusable to sin. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've read the books. You know, what if the Nazi comes to the door and asks me if I'm hiding Jews in the basement, and I say, I cannot tell a lie, sure, they're over there behind that door. Okay? We're not going to go there. Why are we not going to go there? Well, it's actually an interesting discussion. But you know what? If you're not committed to pursuing holiness, that's not a problem. I tell young people, you know, if you're not committed to telling the truth, this is not a problem over here. If you lie to your parents, why not lie to the Nazi? In fact, the odds are you're going to tell the truth to the Nazi and lie to your parents. Because you don't want the Nazis killing you. 
If you do not have a commitment to holiness, you begin to think, yeah, I sinned over here and I sinned over here. God will forgive me, no problem. And guess what? You're just enjoying sinning. And then the hard problems don't become hard problems because it's, well, just not a problem. Now, the Bible does use these examples, though. You know, the one that's used most often is Rahab is hiding the spies, and they come and say, are you hiding the spies? Nope, they left town and they went that way. And if you're interested, there are theologians who deal with that, sub that subject. Yes, sir. Are you going to ask me a question I don't want to answer? Okay. Sin always has consequences. Let's get a few more verses under our belt, shall we? You shall be holy, for I am holy. I might add that's in the Old Testament. We're told that. And if you call on him as father, that's God, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. What does that mean? Do you remember up in the first lesson? There was this phrase, we, were, we are elect exiles. And we had a discussion. We don't want to talk about election, but we did. But the idea that we are not citizens of this world. Peter's going to talk about this more in the weeks to come. We're not supposed to fit in. This world is not our home. We're just passing through, as the song says. So we living in this world are to live in a particular way. We're to be holy. Why? If you call on him as father who judges impartially. There's two words there. Well, one word that we hate, which is the word judge. Let's just face it. We hate the word judge. My son was asking me the other day, what is the most quoted verse in the Bible by non-believers? And I said, to me, it's obvious. Don't judge. Do not judge lest you be judged. Now, two verses later, it says, don't cast your pearls before swine, which gives you some idea that we're supposed to know who the swine are, which appears to be a judgment. But we hate the word judge because the word judge implies that there is some criteria by which I'm being judged. And guess what? I hate your criteria. Come up here so I can whack you again. No. Yeah. <laughs> Judgment implies a criteria. And people have this idea, I know this because I just read it this week again, that somehow God just arbitrarily came up with this list. You know, sex is a lot of fun, therefore don't have sex. You do know that the Bible does not say don't have sex. 
It just has, says sex is in the context of marriage. But what if I want to have sex with 50 people? This is the modern world in which we live. So I don't like your criteria. You're judging me by a criteria. You are wrong. We hate the idea of judgment. The scripture says there's going to be judgment. And that judgment is not based on some arbitrary list. It is based on the character of God. Now, the next word, though, bothers some of us as Christians who judges impartially. What does that mean? Well, we know, you start looking at statistics, if you're rich and hire good lawyers, you'll probably get a better trial than if you're poor and don't have good lawyers. Okay? We want our judges to judge impartially. That's why we see the statues with the eyes covered. I'm judging not based on what you look like, but based on the law, the truth. And we want our human judges to do that, and we know they fall short of that. Why? Because they're humans just like you and I. God doesn't have that problem. God is going to judge correctly, impartially, not based on gender, race, height, weight, intelligence, any of that stuff. But we as Christians go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's going to judge me differently than he's going to judge the unbeliever. You see, this is back to the thought of what God is accomplishing through Jesus. There are those who believe, I know you're a sinner, but I'm going to pretend it didn't happen. That's not what God does. God knows you're a sinner. And sin brings judgment. But God, through Christ, has paid that penalty. That's what he's done. So, you and I are called to be holy because while we're in exile, there's still a righteous judge who's going to judge impartially. Which brings us to one more word that we don't like at all. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourself with fear. The book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Throughout the scripture, we are told to fear God. Now, doesn't the Bible say perfect love cast out fear? Yeah, it does. Let's go back to the very beginning of all of this. God is holy. The second definition, he is set apart from sin. What was the first definition? He's set apart from everything else. He is the creator. We are the created. 
guess what? He is different than we are. He's not just us a little more. You go back to the Greek and the Roman gods. All they were were human beings bigger. They had the same problems. They had the same passions. They were just human beings bigger. God is not just a human being bigger. He is holy. He is set apart. We as believers, forget the pagans for a while. We as a believer need to look at God and say he is holy in a way that I will never be holy. He is set apart in a way that I will never be. And we are to stand in awe, reverence for who God is. And that awe and that reverence is what drives us to be holy, like God is holy. We sing, and I totally like the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Great song. I'm not going to have any theological argument with it. But sometimes we begin to think God is just our buddy, our Santa Claus, walking through life. God is holy. In the Hebrew mind, when you want to emphasize something, well, in English, when we want to emphasize, we put the word very in front of it. This building is big. That building is very big. That building is very, very big. And if you're a teenager, you just keep tacking on varies as if it makes a difference. In Hebrew, you don't do that. If you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. This building is big. That building is big, big. That building is big, big, big. The scripture says God is love, but there is one attribute of God that is big, 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 and that is holy, holy, holy. We see this in Isaiah, and we see it in the book of Revelation. And I might add, the being saying this is an angel in both cases. Yes, sir. It's, yeah, universalism. I mean, we're all going to heaven because God loves everybody, which is back to the problem 
of us taking the attributes of God and picking and choosing the ones we want. But the one that is emphasized the most is that God is holy. And guess what? The God that is holy has not suggested to you, but has commanded you to be holy as he is holy. And guess what? God is a loving God. But the fear of God says, out of awe and reverence for what God has done, this is what I'm going to do. And we'll pick up that thought next week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for providing the means by which we can become holy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.